Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 3, Big Man on Campus, 1874 to 1877. Last time, we looked at Tesla's early schooling, as well as a couple of traumatic relocations, and we got a glimpse into some of his thinking about the world and human nature that would shape his outlook and work for the rest of his life. This week, Tesla goes on the lam not once, but twice, with a bit of schooling and a bit of gambling, and at least one brush with death keeping him busy in between. It was 1874 when we left off. On January 1st of that year, New York City annexed the Bronx. That same year, the Young Men's Hebrew Association in Manhattan was founded. It continues to operate today as the 92nd Street Y. Walter Clopton Wingfield patented a game called Schwarzstecke, which, thankfully, became more commonly known as tennis. And for you footy fans out there, the Dresden English Football Club is founded, the first soccer club on the European mainland. In Paris, in the spring, a critical review of an exhibition by a group of young painters gives their movement a name, Impressionism, after Claude Monet's painting Impression, Sunrise. In May, Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis receive a U.S. patent for blue jeans with copper rivets. The price is $13.50 per dozen. The Shoals and Glidden typewriter, also known as the Remington No. 1, with cylindrical platen and QWERTY keyboard, is first marketed in the United States. It could print only uppercase letters and was a blind writer, meaning the typist couldn't see what was being written as it was entered. Nevertheless, it became the first commercially successful typewriter, as the new communication technologies and expanding businesses of the late 19th century created a need for fast, legible correspondence. The typewriter is credited with assisting the entrance of women into the workplace, as many were hired to operate the new devices. As we'll see in a later episode, Tesla had some thoughts on this shift of women outside the home. On July 14th, the Great Chicago Fire burned down 47 acres of the city, destroying 812 buildings and killing 20. Also in July, Matthew Evans and Henry Woodward filed a Canadian patent for the first incandescent lamp with an electric light bulb, four years before Thomas Edison even began his research into incandescent lighting. The Evans-Woodward lamp consisted of carbon rods mounted in a nitrogen-filled glass cylinder. However, they were unsuccessful at commercializing their lamp and sold their rights to the patent to Thomas Edison in 1879. In November, Harper's Weekly publishes a cartoon by Thomas Nast, which is the first use of an elephant as a symbol for the Republican Party in the United States. John Ernst Worrell Keeley demonstrates his induction resonance motion motor, a perpetual motion machine, which eventually turns out to be a fraud. And English chemist C.R. Alder Wright synthesizes heroin for the first time. 1874 was a particularly busy year for historically significant births. Born were, and get comfortable, Robert W. Service, a British-Canadian poet known as the Bard of the Yukon and best remembered for his poem The Cremation of Sam McGee. William Somerset Maugham, a British playwright, novelist, and short story writer. He was among the most popular writers of his era and reputedly the world's highest paid author during the 1930s. Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton, Thomas John Watson Sr., 
early computing pioneer, and chairman and CEO of IBM from 1914 to 1956. Famed shortstop Honus Wagner, magician and escape artist Harry Houdini, American poet Robert Frost, Howard Carter, the British archaeologist who discovered the tomb of King Tut and later died of the mummy's curse, I mean of completely natural causes. G.K. Chesterton, English author of both mystery novels and Catholic devotionals, Herbert Hoover, who would become 31st President of the United States and blunder his way through the early years of the Great Depression, Gustav Holst, English composer best known for his work The Planets, and Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature, and one of the people who saved Western civilization in the mid-20th century. I have a lot of respect for Churchill, and he's one of the people I've got my eye on for a Life and Times podcast someday. Also born in 1874 was Guillermo Marconi, an Italian inventor and recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physics, who history remembers as the inventor of radio. Marconi will feature again later in this podcast when we talk about Tesla's own patents for wireless and how they were infringed by Marconi. But for now, before you jump to any conclusions about him, remember... Marconi is the great-grandson of the guy who founded Irish whiskey distillers Jameson and Sons, so he can't be all that bad. A little closer to home for me, three notable Canadians. First, and sharing a birthday with Churchill, Canadian author Lucy Maud Montgomery, author of the Anne of Green Gables stories. When my family visited Prince Edward Island not long ago, we were sure to visit Green Gables, her old house, which is now part of a national park. Perhaps someday, if this podcast is a big enough hit, my house too will be made into a national park. William Lyon Mackenzie King, 10th and longest serving Prime Minister of Canada, spending a total of 21 years, 154 days as PM, in three majority and three minority governments between 1921 and 1948. Term limits, schmerm limits. He's best known for his leadership of Canada throughout the Second World War, and for his habit of sitting on park benches, conversing with the ghost of his dead mother. No foolin', look it up. And perhaps most importantly, in December 1874, James Lewis Kraft was born. He was an entrepreneur and inventor, and was the first person to patent processed cheese. God bless this man. He founded the company that later became Kraft Foods Incorporated, and generations of university students on a budget owe this man their thanks for craft dinner. Dying in 1874 wasn't as fashionable as being born, it seems. Passings of note do include Rabbi Abraham Geiger, founder of Reform Judaism, Millard Fillmore, 13th President of the United States, Chang and Eng Bunker, Thai-American conjoined twin brothers and sideshow performers, whose condition and birthplace became the basis for the term Siamese twins, and Anders Jonas Angstrom, Swedish physicist and one of the founders of the science of spectroscopy. Named in his honor is the Angstrom, a unit of measure in which the wavelengths of light and interatomic spacings in condensed matter are measured. He also has a crater on the moon and one of the main building complexes of Uppsala University named for him. And so we turn, at last, to Tesla in 1874. As they used to say in those old radio serials, when last we left our hero... And when last we saw him, 
Young Nicola was trying to figure out a way to tell his father, an Orthodox priest who expected his son to follow him into the family business, that what he really wanted to do was become an electrical engineer. I'd rather just Stop that, stop that. You're not going into a song while I'm here. But before he could, Tesla received a strange letter from his father shortly before the end of term, suggesting that he not return home, but rather go on a shooting expedition in the mountains. Tesla found this an odd suggestion, since his father had always opposed hunting for sport. Now, in O'Neill's prodigal genius, it's suggested that Tesla's parents, ever cautious about Nicholas' health, had tried to prevent him from coming home because of a cholera outbreak in the Gospish area. While this seems perfectly reasonable, why the subterfuge? Why not simply say, hey, Nico, better stay away till this whole cholera thing blows over, okay? More likely as some other Tesla biographers have suggested, this was a way to try and help Tesla avoid the compulsory three-year military term that all young men had to serve in the Austrian military in this era. It is notable that Tesla does not mention this military term, or its avoidance, at all in his biography, and he did end up disappearing into the woods for about a year, as we'll see in a minute. First, however, whether he was aware of his parents' real reasons in their cautioning him away from home or not, he returned to Gospish against their wishes. In his biography, Tesla mocks the simple and superstitious people of Gospish for not understanding the origin of the cholera that would intermittently plague the city. It is incredible how absolutely ignorant people were as to the causes of this scourge, Tesla notes. They thought that the deadly agents were transmitted through the air and filled it with pungent odors and smoke. In the meantime, they drank the infected water and died in heaps. For all his superior understanding, it's noteworthy that Tesla contracted cholera the very day he arrived back in Gospish, and was bedridden for months. Nice work, smarty pants. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness of Tesla's condition. Cholera is serious business. Vomiting, muscle cramping, and the potential for fatal dehydration and electrolyte imbalance. Tesla reports being close to death several times during his convalescence. What saved him, Tesla says, was his father's final acceptance and permission for his son to become an engineer. In one of the sinking spells, which was thought to be my last, my father rushed into the room. I still see his pallid face as he tried to cheer me in tones belying his assurance. Perhaps, I said, I may get well if you will let me study engineering. You will go to the best technical institution in the world, he solemnly replied, and I knew that he meant it. And after that, Tesla did recover. However, there remained the pesky problem of the compulsory military service. With war breaking out against the Turks, once again Milutin recommended that extended hunting trip. And so, in 1874, risking prison if caught, Tesla disappeared into the mountains near Grasik. Here, I think, O'Neill makes a good point. We should appreciate how serious this situation was, not just for Tesla, but his whole family. Remember that in addition to the priesthood, the Tesla family had a tradition of sending sons to military service. The inventor's grandfather, also named Nikola Tesla, was a sergeant in Napoleon's Illyrian army. Relatives of Nikola had achieved high rank and honors in the army. Many were still in active service of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. One of his mother Juka's brothers, Pajo Mandish, was a field marshal in the Austro-Hungarian army. 
another relative ran an Austrian military academy. For a member of that family to become essentially a draft dodger or a conscientious objector would have been scandalous in addition to illegal. I think Nicholas' father was perfectly aware of this when he kept emphasizing a hunting trip to the mountains rather than an open acknowledgement that his son should avoid the draft. Surely he, too, could have been liable to prosecution for encouraging his son to run away. War with the Turks was threatening, and given his son's delicate health and the early death of his only other boy, doubtless the risk was worth it in Millington's mind. And so, at this point in Tesla's life, I always envision him wandering the countryside like Michael Corleone in The Godfather, hiding out until the heat back home blows over. Nicholas spent a year exploring the mountains in hunter's garb, and he felt that the extended contact with nature made him stronger, both physically and mentally. With nothing but time on his hands, Tesla spent his days in thought, reading or planning his future and imagining great inventions. One plan was to send letters and packages across the sea in spherical containers blasted through submarine tubes by high-pressured seawater. Another idea, right out of a sci-fi novel, was to construct an orbiting geostationary ring around the Earth's equator, which would allow for travel around the globe at a rate of about a thousand miles an hour. To Tesla's credit, this idea has some analogs in the geosynchronized satellites not invented until the mid-20th century though he envisioned it as a way to quickly move people and goods around the planet. How exactly this would get built, Tesla makes reference to some sort of scaffolding that would be removed once the ring was complete, or how you would reach the fully functioning ring before not just the advent of rocket technology, but when the Wright brothers were still some 29 years away from their first flight, wasn't something that seemed to concern Tesla. And just because I looked it up, when Tesla concocted this idea... Wilbur Wright was seven years old, and Orville was only three. And that's today's historical fun fact. Give him credit, Tesla was never one to think small. In his excellent book, Tesla, Inventor of the Electrical Age, W. Bernard Carlson makes an interesting observation about Tesla's desire throughout his life as an inventor to think big like this, and to seek out the ideal behind an invention. He argues that such an impulse comes ultimately from Tesla's exposure to the Orthodox Christian theology of his father and uncles in the priesthood. In the Orthodox faith, the material universe is not only orderly, but everything in it, whether natural or man-made, has a logos, that is, an underlying divine principle imparted to it via Jesus Christ, who was the capital L Logos, the Word, through whom, as the second person of the Holy Trinity, the universe was created. Our human task as craftsmen and manufacturers, writes one Orthodox bishop, is to discern this logos dwelling in each thing and to render it manifest. We seek not to dominate, but to cooperate. While certainly not, by his own admission, an Orthodox believer, either upper or lowercase o, Tesla's early exposure to this philosophy certainly shaped him and his worldview. We'll talk in a few episodes about the contrast between Tesla and his longtime frenemy Thomas Edison, but I think in many ways this is a good summary of the difference. While Edison's style was brash and American in its desire to dominate the forces of nature and bend them to human uses, Tesla strikes one as more interested in harnessing the power of nature in a cooperative fashion. He didn't seek to dam or divert Niagara Falls, 
but to use its natural properties to bring electricity to the masses. And, like his reformer father, as he grew older, Tesla became less interested in making money from his inventions and more concerned with how they might benefit humanity. Whether it was wireless power or radio control or his so-called peace beam that would render war obsolete, Tesla's driving force in later life was the improvement of man's place in the world. This approach, though likely subconscious, came from his exposure to the thinking and beliefs of a father he never really got along with. But as fantastic as Tesla's wilderness plans sounds, Tesla himself eventually became aware of their impracticality. The vision was there, he said, but the understanding of principles was lacking. I submit this would be a theme throughout Tesla's life. For example, he realized later that his idea for the submarine tubes was impractical, if not impossible, as he had failed to take into account the frictional resistance of the pipe to the flow of water. Over the course of this year, Tesla's father worked on his connections, especially his high-ranking relatives in the army, to use their influence to enable his son to escape conscription and avoid punishment for failing to report for duty. Given the excuse of Nikola's delicate health, Milutin was ultimately able to get his son exempted from the draft. Tesla returned home to Gospish after his year as a mountain man, and learned that his father had kept his sickbed promise to his son. Milutin had somehow managed to secure, perhaps again through family connections, a scholarship from the Military Frontier Administration Authority. The scholarship would pay for three years, and it would permit Tesla to attend the Johannim Polytechnic School in Graz, Austria. Upon completion of his studies, Tesla would owe the military authority eight years of service, although this never seems to come up again in Tesla's biographies, perhaps because he never completed his degree, or perhaps because the military frontier itself and its administration were dissolved a few years later, but we'll get to that. Despite his scholarship, Tesla was determined to make the most of his time at the Polytechnic. I had made up my mind to give my parents a surprise, Tesla later wrote, and he threw himself into his studies with abandon. Doubtless, he wanted to prove to his father in particular that giving his permission to study engineering was the right choice. Tesla plunged into his studies, supposedly allowing himself only four hours rest, not all of which he spent in slumber. He would go to bed at 11 p.m. and read himself to sleep. He was then up again by 3 a.m., tackling his studies. By cramming from 3 in the morning until 11 at night, he completed two years' work in one. He also, apparently, found time to start a Serbian culture club. He was fueled by what he described as copious amounts of coffee. So copious, in fact, that Tesla began experiencing heart palpitations from all the caffeine. And so began what would be a lifelong moderation in the amount of coffee he would consume. When I was in my first year of university, I happened to win a year's supply of Pepsi from the cafeteria, which I relied on pretty hard to get me through exam time, so I can relate to the whole over-caffeinated heart palpitations thing. Physics, mathematics, and mechanics were his main studies, but so too was literature. Showing some flashes of his compulsive tendencies, he felt compelled to finish, once started, the complete works of Voltaire. He didn't appear to enjoy Voltaire, however, referring to him as a coffee-swilling monster, but nevertheless, he hate-read all 100 volumes of the man's complete works. At the end of the year, he sailed through nine exams with ease. Returning home with the highest marks in all subjects, he expected his father to be proud. Instead, 
Tesla recounts that his father, quote, made light of these hard-won honors, and instead showed concern only for Nicholas' health, criticizing him for endangering it after his earlier narrow escape from death. That almost killed my ambition, he writes. Several years later, after his father had died, Nikola discovered a package of letters, which one of the professors had written to Milliton, concerned with how hard Nikola was pushing himself and urging Milliton to take his son away from the institution, lest he kill himself through overwork. While this might seem a bit harsh, as a father myself, I kind of have to feel for Milliton here, and be impressed by the restraint he showed in letting Nikola finish out the term. While this is long before the era of the helicopter parent, and I really hope I'm not one of those, by the way, for parents who had already lost one son tragically, to be warned that another might be working himself to death must have been terrifying. The natural impulse would be to get in your buggy and go get the boy for his own good. That's what I would have done anyway. Instead, Milliton let his son stay, a sign, I think, of knowing just how important this vocation was to young Nicola, even if Milliton did get a bit passive-aggressive once the boy was home. Returning to school the following year, and perhaps chafing at both his father's interference as well as the taunting of his fellow students for a fairly monastic way of life, Tesla began to cut loose, and would come to pay the price. Primarily, Tesla's rebellion took the form of gambling. There is some suggestion that, at first, Tesla took up cards mainly as a way to relax between study sessions. However, his natural intelligence and keen deductive skills meant that he was quite good at cards, winning more often than he lost. Soon, he was spending long hours in coffee shops playing cards, billiards, or chess for money. His father, when he caught wind of this, couldn't understand what he saw as a senseless waste of time and money. For his part, Nicola fell back on that favorite saying of all addicts. I can stop whenever I please, he told his father. But is it worthwhile to give up that which I would purchase with the joys of paradise? Adding to the rift between father and son was the abolition of the military frontier authority, and along with it, the scholarship upon which they depended. While not playing cards, Tesla did actually attend class, and during his second year, a state-of-the-art direct-current Graham Dynamo was delivered from Paris to the classroom of Professor Poschel, Tesla's physics teacher. The arrival of this dynamo was to have momentous implications for Tesla and his life. To understand why, it's important to know a bit of the difference between alternating current, AC, which is what we all use today, thanks to Tesla, and direct current, DC, which is still in use today for certain applications, but which in the 1870s was the only real viable option available. Electricity in its natural state is alternating, positive to negative, positive to negative, and back again. This means that its direction of flow changes rapidly. An analogy often used is of a river that flows upstream one moment, only to switch downstream the next, and then back and forth again and again. There's no way to harness such a river with, for example, a water wheel and have it do any useful work. So prior to the advent of AC motors, dynamos were equipped with a device called a commutator, a series of wire brushes that transferred the current from the generator to the motor in only one direction of flow, making it a direct current motor. It was a clunky piece of technology, prone to sending out storms of electrical sparks. While Professor Poschel displayed this up-to-the-date equipment, electric sparks and all, 
Tesla intuitively deduced that the commutator was unnecessary and that alternating current, AC, could be harnessed without the need to first transform it into DC power. When he said as much in class, his professor shot him down. Hard. Other scientists had toyed with the idea of an AC dynamo long before it occurred to Tesla, but none had met with success. Mr. Tesla may do many things, Professor Poschel said to the class, but this he cannot accomplish. His plan is simply a perpetual motion scheme. The exchange must have amounted to more than that, however, since Professor Poschel devoted his next lecture and demonstration to refuting Tesla's objections one by one. His dissection was so thorough and methodical that Tesla later confessed that even he wavered in his belief of the practicality of AC power. But instinct can be a powerful thing, something which transcends logic, and Tesla couldn't shake the surety of his insight. We have, undoubtedly, certain finer fibers, Tesla later wrote, that enable us to perceive truths when logical deduction or any other willful effort of the brain is futile. For a time I wavered, impressed by the professor's authority, but soon became convinced I was right and undertook the task with all the fire and boundless confidence of youth. You have to admire the chutzpah of Tesla here. He simply came to believe that his professor and everyone else in the world was wrong and that he was right. It's the kind of belief that, if you prove it, makes you a genius and a visionary, but which, if it doesn't pan out, can drive you mad. The sort of general malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. Tesla spent hours mentally constructing and deconstructing DC and AC motors and generators. He would visualize whole systems around the technologies. But his flash of insight, unfortunately, didn't bring with it the essential practical details of how this innovation could actually be built and work. He would spend years obsessed with proving the professor wrong, but getting no closer to a solution. In the meantime, Tesla's new bohemian lifestyle began to get the better of him. By his third year, Tesla was running into difficulties at school. He returned to Graz in the fall of 1877, but soon stopped attending lectures, and university records show he wasn't even registered for the spring term of 1878. Tesla was bored and frustrated by his inability to find a solution to this AC problem, and so he began to gamble much more heavily to relieve the tension, sometimes in marathons of 24 hours at a stretch. Although Tesla tended to return his winnings to heavy losers, few did likewise for him. So one semester, he lost his entire allowance, including money for tuition. His father was furious, but his mother came to him with a roll of bills and said, go and enjoy yourself. The sooner you lose all we possess, the better it will be. I know that you'll get over it. Chastened by this, Nicola won back his initial losses and returned the balance to his family. I conquered my passion then and there, he wrote, and, quote, tore it from my heart so as not to leave a trace of desire. Ever since that time, I have been as indifferent to any form of gambling as to picking teeth. Which is a nice story, but not really true. Tesla gambled quite freely in later years, particularly during his heyday in New York society. He was especially skilled at billiards. An Edison employee recalled, quote, He played a beautiful game. Tesla was not a high scorer, but his cushion shots displayed skill equal to that of a professional exponent of this art. It has also been suggested that in the early 1890s, 
Tesla hustled some of the wealthy society set that he ran with in New York by feigning minimal ability in the game. I'd like to believe this is true. It's the romantic in me. His gambling addiction, conquered or not, it was too late. Exam time came, and Tesla found himself woefully unprepared. He asked for an extension to study, but was denied. He never graduated from the Austrian Polytechnic School, and did not receive any grades for his last semester there. Now, I should point out, Tesla never mentions flunking out in his autobiography, and O'Neill spins it in a much more positive light in Prodigal Genius, saying Tesla simply chose not to return after taking up a job at an engineering firm. I think the fact that both are essentially silent on the matter is quite telling. In September 1877, Tesla wrote to a pro-Serbian newspaper, the Queen Bee, requesting help in securing a new scholarship to continue his studies in either Vienna or Brno. He claimed he had to give up his military scholarship due to unspecified illness. He listed among his qualifications fluency in Italian, French, and English, and signed the letter Nikola Tesla, Technician. His request was turned down. Likely fearing that his parents would find out about his failure, Tesla secretly packed his things, headed south over the border into Slovenia, and disappeared. And like that, he's gone. Next week, we'll join the search for Tesla as his father goes looking to see what's become of his son. After a couple of aimless, frustrated montage years of his life, Tesla will have the first encounter with a name that will be entangled with his forever, Thomas Alva Edison. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll spread the word. Tell a friend. Maybe share a link via your social media of choice. It helps. And wherever you get your podcasts, please make sure you're subscribed there to the show, and please leave a rating and review. That helps too. All past episodes of the show, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list, with updates and alerts about the show, links to articles, and other stuff related to Tesla, his life, and times. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can always contact me directly via email at tesla at That's K-O-T-O-W-Y-C-H.com or on Twitter with the handle at OurManKato. That's OurManKoto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowich.